Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 726 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 2nd of December 2023 as I record this and it really is countdown to the end of the year now. (laughs) It's crazy. So in today's show I'm talking to Jane Dixon-Smith about creating a cookbook and the challenges of creating a photo-heavy book from the choice of recipes and personalisation to the photography editing, design decisions, the paper choice, which is really important. Plus, Jane is my cover designer and my book interior designer. So towards the end, she gives her opinion on the use of AI images. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing things, well, thanks to my friend Andre, who sent me a link to Brandon Sanderson talking about his predictions about publishing for 2024 on the Daniel Green YouTube channel. Now, I rarely watch videos, but I watched this one and took some notes for you. It is a conversation. Uh, I absolutely respect Brandon Sanderson as someone who is very well connected and knows a lot about traditional publishing and now indie publishing. It is definitely worth a listen. And if you're a fantasy author, the channel itself looks great. It's very, very popular. Now, if you don't know Brandon Sanderson or Brando Sando, he's even got his own little name now. (laughs) He has been a huge fantasy author in the traditional model for many years, but became a bit of an indie hero in the last couple of years for his Kickstarters, including his epic sort of over $41 million campaign. Uh, His small press for just for the fulfillment of that campaign is bigger than most publishers, Uh, you know, obviously most smaller publishers, but pretty amazing. Anyway, to his predictions, and he does call them doom and gloom predictions, but we are not doom and gloom around here. So I'm looking at the predictions in terms of the positive aspects and the opportunities rather than a negative thing. So first of all, he talked about subscription models being pushed more within publishing, KU and other things for ebooks, Spotify for audiobooks, amongst many others. And all of these, he says, push down royalty revenue for authors. Now, as I've been talking about for probably a couple of years now, is that we need to use the subscription models where they're wide. I mean, I'm wide. There's plenty of subscription models for wide authors, and uh, we can use them for uh, getting audiences to find us. So use them for discoverability. They don't need to be the main source of revenue. And uh, many people, one of the reasons that a lot of people are talking about going direct now is because even the KU payments have started to dip. So um, for many people, looking at other forms of income is important. So yes, for me, subscription models being pushed are inevitable for digital products. And again, this uh, underpins the importance of beautiful physical products. So I don't think this is a surprise, but it is interesting that it's kind of being talked about at a higher level. So he also mentioned that publishers don't value the individual author voice. They see books as IP. 
intellectual property, and he expects more IP grabs in boilerplate contracts so a publisher will control more of the ways to make money from a book, which puts more power in the hands of the big companies. So he said, watch out for those types of clauses in contracts. Now again, flipping that on its head, we do value the individual author voice. As independents, that is what we are. We are individual author voices. And together we are stronger, which is why I absolutely recommend the Alliance of Independent Authors. Uh, As a group, we can lobby for bigger things. Uh, But we also see books as IP, intellectual property. And this is how you need to value your work. If you do want uh, to sign a contract with a traditional publisher, definitely watch out for clauses that might tie your intellectual property up for the life of copyright, which I'm sure you know by now is 50 to 70 years after you die. (laughs) So uh, Brandon also said, and this is, I think this is interesting, but not surprising. He says, nobody in publishing knows how to launch a book anymore. It's never been harder to launch a new author. So I, again, I see this as not something new, something that's been said for many, many years. (laughs) But I think why it's important, again, is kind of coming into One of the reasons that many people get a traditional publishing contract is because they don't want to do their own marketing. But the fact is, we are going to have to do our own marketing regardless of the situation. Now, I do have uh, a big article coming up on how I think generative search is going to help us as well as make things more difficult. There are pros and cons in every situation, as you know, but I have actually more hope now than I have had for the last few years because he and Daniel also said marketing is unsustainable right now. Every author is trying to game the system. There is a big problem with Amazon having moved to an ad-based model. Um, authors will pay, and this is what Brandon said, authors will pay way more for ad space to buy a dream. And that those are the people you're competing with. And I thought that was really interesting because that is definitely true. And I have um, reduced my ad spend quite a lot this year um, as the costs have gone up. And I'm just looking at the more sustainable content marketing ways of marketing that I've always done. (laughs) And it's funny, people always say to me about my book, How to Market a Book, you know, is it still relevant? And I'm like, do you know what? It's really coming round again. (laughs) (laughs) So that book only has one chapter on paid ads and most of it is on other things and it feels like all the other things are coming round again. We've had a sort of big ad-based model for years but now it's changing I think. Paid ads are still important and I certainly still do paid ads but they're not everything anymore. So one thing that hopefully will encourage you is they did say that AI is going to shake things up. There will be good things and bad things. But AI didn't even make Brandon's list of worries. He said, do we care if AI can write books better than humans? No, we don't. The human touch makes a connection. And that's exactly my point. Use the tools to make your books better and to help with your marketing and all of that kind of thing. I I don't care at all that AI can probably already write books better than me. (laughs) And if you've been using ChatGPT recently and the GPTs where you can really fine tune your writing, it's quite extraordinary. Um, But as we said, it doesn't matter. Brandon said it doesn't matter. (laughs) And I totally agree with that. We can use the tools to make our work better and we have the human touch. 
So one of the big things he said, and obviously this is his model as well, is do not sell special edition rights. So if you are having, if you are signing a traditional contract, keep special edition rights to yourself. He said they are the vinyl of the book industry. He said you might even use New York Publishing as a loss leader, and uh, then make a living when royalties go down to like a dollar by doing signed special editions. Get a thousand fans to pay a hundred dollars each for your books. That's a living wage. Give fans something they love. And this is exactly the Kickstarter model, the selling direct model that a lot of us have been talking about and I'm definitely moving into. So yes, more on that in my 15 year pivot episode, which is also coming up. I have basically the rest of December is all solo episodes for me. (laughs) So we've got loads of work to do. But yeah, things to say, lots of things to say. Uh, So in in that, another friend of mine, Alastair, sent me a podcast also on this topic, author and photographer Craig Mod on the Long Form podcast. So that's the Long Form podcast, which is quite interesting, talking about his new book, Things Become Other Things. Now, I did just buy a copy of the book after listening to it for a couple of reasons. So firstly, the book is about walking and combines essays and thoughts about walking alongside memoir segments, which uh, is very similar to my book, Pilgrimage, although mine is in Europe and his is in Japan. But it's also a special project and a limited edition print book of incredible quality. And the sales page includes phrases like, fine art archival matte Japanese body papers and blind deboss and foil stamped cover. So those types of words, that kind of language is what I want to learn next year and start doing for myself. I've had some wonderful comments from people saying that they love the gold foil and the black ribbon and the beautiful quality of writing the shadow, the Kickstarter edition. Uh, And I want to make every book something else, something new, something beautiful from now on uh, when I do special projects. It won't be for everything. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited about what we can make now. I am I really feel like I want to become more of a publisher of beautiful books. But yeah, have a listen to Craig on the Long Form podcast as he also talks about the challenges of the creator model. And this is a challenge where you make beautiful things you want to make and then you try to sell them. <laughs> as opposed to paying any attention to the market. But then he has uh, also licensed a version of this book to a major publisher who only became interested after they saw what he had made. So these things, and also he talks about basically has a subscription model which pays for his living expenses so he can do these beautiful books. And again, I'm kind of moving into that with uh, my wonderful Patreon community. Um, So yes, I think there are other ways to do this living and I think listening to Craig was interesting so yeah links in the show notes so in my personal news Beneath the Zoo is with my editor Kristen it is a short story inspired by the demolition of Bristol Zoo near me where my dad used to take me and my brother for days out after my parents divorced. And I've heard from others since I mentioned it last week that zoo visits were a common thing for days out with dads. (laughs) So it seems like that really is bound up with all kinds of emotions for a lot of people. But this is a very JF Penn short story. Uh, I do intend to do a short story collection at some point, again, with photos and sort of little more extended pieces about the inspirations of my stories. Thinking of that maybe in 2025, if I have enough, because 
because of course uh, to do a short story collection is uh, you need to really think about the structure of it and everything um, so my gold standard I thought I'd mention this because again this is one of these long-term projects that I didn't think was viable but now I do so my gold standard is Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected which I would have read in my early teens I don't know maybe 13 14 I still remember two particular stories, Royal Jelly and Lamb to the Slaughter. I still remember those two. And that is the kind of story I aim to write, sort of creepy and dark with a twist. Um, and anyway, that story, I will have that every, on pre-order everywhere in the next week. So that's Beneath the Zoo. And uh, within the Patreon community, I'm doing a sort of end-to-end presentation on how I did that story with various AI tools as well as how I'm publishing and all of that kind of thing. So also as this goes out I will have completed my first two shadow session live webinars with the last batch coming up next weekend. If you bought that you should have emails with all the details. Again uh, I've tried to contact everyone (laughs) but I still have a few people who I have not managed to get through to. So if you did back my writing the shadow Kickstarter, you should have all the digital files. I sent those over a month ago. Most of you should also have the printed books. It may be if you're in Australia or New Zealand, you don't have them yet, but they are on their way. And I've been getting emails and tweets and Instagram photos of people sharing their copies, which is lovely. Any issues, message me through Kickstarter or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. So Writing the Shadow is out on my store this week since it's been out for a month digitally and the print books have all arrived mostly everywhere. Um, It's going to be out this week on creativepenbooks.com. The gold edition obviously was Kickstarter only so there are no gold editions on sale now but you can still get it in other formats and it's on pre-order at the other stores for the end of the year. As I mentioned I've been working on some solo shows, my 15-year pivot show And my article on how generative AI search will change book discovery, it was going to be a little like a blog post, but now it's morphed into a pretty big opinion piece. (laughs) So I'm going to make that a solo show. That will probably be next week. These episodes take a lot of work. So thanks to my patrons for funding my brain. This, yeah, this generative AI search piece uh, is super, super interesting. I'm obviously trying to cast the net longer into the future and it will be one of the pieces that I'm early on in terms of the impact but it feels like the right moment to share what I'm thinking I've been thinking about it for a while it also feeds into my 15 year pivot and why I'm making some of these choices so yeah I've also been planning 2024 if you would like a wonderful relaxed conference in a beautiful city I will be speaking at 20 Books Spain in Seville Sevilla on the AI assisted artisan author there are a limited number of tickets to that conference so if you want to come it was definitely one of my favorite conferences this year perhaps ever in fact so I'm looking forward to going back I almost moved to Spain in the 90s and I feel very at home there so expect a super relaxed Joe (laughs) if you come and uh, the wine helps of course you can book tickets at 20booksspain.com if you uh, fancy coming to that but as I said limited number of tickets and they usually have an English speaking track and a Spanish track so if you're English speaking which presumably you are listening to this then uh, you can go in the English track or the Spanish track if you speak Spanish. So thanks for your emails and comments. Thanks also for sending the photos of writing the shadow as it arrives. It's lovely to see it out in the wild. 
So on Michael's subscription interview at Burley 63 says, so inspirational. It was fantastic listening to two futuristic authors sharing their knowledge. Also, Wayne listened to the Let Your Dark Horse Run chapter from a few episodes ago, which was an excerpt from Writing the Shadow. And um, I narrate the audiobook, so that will be everywhere soon. Again, it's available on my store now. Uh, Wayne says, great podcast. I struggle with voice and find myself continually drawn back to darker themes. To test your theory, I downloaded your book Desecration off Amazon. Wow, that's a departure from your usual easygoing podcast voice. Well done. (laughs) And that that did make me laugh. Um, Yes, JF Penn is different to Joanna Penn. It is definitely a different side of me. And Writing the Shadow feels like the book that links the two together. So thank you, Wayne. So please leave a comment on the podcast show notes at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel or email me, send me pictures of where you're listening, joanna at thecreativepen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's episode is sponsored by Drafter Digital, and I will play a word from Kevin in a minute. Now, I use Drafter Digital for ebook distribution, specifically for libraries, as well as Nook and even Apple now for many of my books, as well as payment splitting for the relaxed author with Mark Leslie Lefebvre. And they also do print books in keeping with the spirit of this episode. Although Jane also talks about the ebook version of her cookbook and we talk about the delivery charges for that. So we go into all kinds of things. But yes, Drafter Digital, fantastic partner for uh, indie authors, also has really great customer support, which I know is important for many people. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my community at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. As a patron, you get access to the monthly Q&A, which I will be doing in the next few weeks for December. And it's basically an extra solo show and you can download the backlist as well. I'm also now doing videos behind the scenes on various AI tools uh, and different parts of my author business, as well as mindset and all of that. This week, we have one coming, a demo from Jay Thorne on how to use ChatGPT to research reader archetypes and generate content for your email newsletter in your author voice. One of the big challenges for authors, of course, is uh, getting uh, those emails out in terms of what do we even say to people? (laughs) So this will help. So basically, I'm trying to turn my Patreon into a really useful resource for authors. And it is now a monthly subscription, the equivalent of a black coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. So uh, if you feel you get value from the show and you want more, come on over and join more than 800 authors now. Thanks to all the patrons who've been supporting the show for years and months. And thanks to new patrons. You are fantastic. I'm so glad you find the show useful after all these years. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week. Zoe, Kerry, Christine, Ty, Alexandra, Matt, Alison, Juliet, Anne, Violet, Jolie Sue, Sylvia, May Britt and Moose. You can join the community and get lots of extra information and inspiration as well as supporting the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from draft to digital and then we'll get into the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital ebooks are amazing, but there's just something about having your book in print, the crack of the spine, the weight and feel, the smell, 
Ah, everybody loves a good paperback. And that's why we built D2D Print. It's the easiest way to get your book from pixel to print with just a couple of clicks. We take care of you with free layout templates and formatting, and we can convert your ebook cover into a full wraparound print cover automatically. And if you run into trouble, we're just an email away with all the author support you've come to know and love. Come check out D2D Print and all the cool tools we've built for you. Find more at d2d.tips slash creative pen. That's pen with two N's. Jane Dixon Smith is a historical fiction author, an award-winning book cover designer, graphic designer, and adventurer. Her latest book is The Great Adventure Baker, and Jane also designs my book covers and print interiors, so I am a huge fan of her work. So welcome back to the show, Jane. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's going to be exciting to talk about this because so many people want to do cookbooks, but there are many challenges. But before we get into that, tell us a bit more about your adventuring side of your life and why you decided to do a baking book at this point in your creative career. Well, um, I got into adventuring properly probably about five years ago. I needed a bit of time away from my desk because I just sit here all the time designing and and all of that kind of thing. And living in the lakes, we have just tons of stuff right on the doorstep. Uh, And I joined some groups on Facebook and started walking with different people and taking um, tray bakes along with me, uh, which everyone seemed to really love. And I'd get asked for the recipes and I'd quite happily give my recipes out. I wasn't particularly protective of them, like some people I've come across in the past have been. So I just quite happily send the recipes to people and they can make them themselves. But taking the bakes on on adventure days uh, meant that I didn't get fat. (laughs) It's one of those, you burn the calories off so you get to eat the cake. So it was kind of guilt-free baking for me. Um, And then last year, my mum passed away at the beginning of the year. And I think that was the spur really for me to actually do a book on baking I'd thought about it in the past but I didn't have a I didn't have a real reason to do it and I thought there's so many baking books out there and none of them you know why why would I do one but when I combined it with the fact that it was aimed at people going into the outdoors and I could include some of my mum's recipes as well and dedicate it to her that's what really sort of got me going with it and obviously it's quite an easy thing for me to do in terms of already being a book designer to actually put it all together. Yeah I mean I think you're right the family reasons a lot of people hand down recipes I know some of your mum's recipes are in there as well as your own but just wanted to come back on the adventuring so you mentioned the lakes so for people listening that's the lake district in the UK but can you also maybe comment on how getting away from your desk doing the adventuring has helped your creative side and how being active plays this really important part in your life now because it does seem like this is so important to you. Yeah, I I think it's just getting that balance right of spending time sedentary at your desk and also spending time um, doing something really active and especially getting outdoors when I sit inside all of the time. And my kids got a little bit bigger and they went to secondary school and I had a lot more time on my hands. And, and because I work for myself, uh, I can 
sort of manage my time and go out in the week when all of the busy places and the popular mountains are really quiet. So that was a really nice aspect of it. But I've got up to Scotland, do a lot in Wales, even got out to the Alps last year as well. So it's sort of really taken on a life of its own. And I've got to meet loads and loads of lovely people as well. So it's Mm. been really nice. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's really encouraging. And so people know you've got what three three kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you're you know busy working mom, and you've managed to bring this into your life. And I I love your pictures <laughs> on Facebook. I was it, it's like oh wow, Jane's up another mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I take so many photos, and I was taking loads and loads of pictures of my baking on the mountains anyway and generally taking pictures when I'm out and about I've got millions now of uh, photographs of being on a mountain me being on a mountain tons of selfies tons of pictures of other people lots of pictures of baking and they're the pictures that people liked was the pictures of baking on mountains apparently which is a bit (laughs) strange but yeah, I know. That's great. So a lot of people do want to publish a cookery book, but let's go into each of the challenges one at a time. First of all, recipes, because it's really interesting. You can't actually copyright a list of ingredients. So most no. recipes, you can't copyright them and anyone could take a recipe and put it in a book. So how did you think about that? And, and how did you then make the book more personal in terms of writing the recipes and comments and stories to make an original product? Yeah, I mean, the recipes themselves, the ones that I've either adapted or have been passed down to me, and and I don't always know exactly where they've come from. But you're right, you can't copyright the actual list of the ingredients. And you obviously can't directly copy the written aspect of the method. But you can obviously write the method as you would do it. Um, And also, I did I tweaked recipes from those that I'd been given or handed, changed different things. Obviously, I tried all of the timings myself, tweaked timings. So so they are sort of like probably not original, original set of recipes, but they're certainly tried and tested ones that I've been doing for a very long period of time. And I also wrote short intros to each of the recipes about what they mean to me, um, little tips, um, places that I'd taken them, where they came from and why they mean a lot to me and that kind of thing. So I'd included that as well. And obviously I I did an an intro about why I'd done the book and what it meant to me. So there's a lot of sort of little personal bits and pieces in there, not just a list of ingredients and a method. Yeah. And I think that is so important with any non-fiction book these days, but certainly the reason why people have so many books of, of, you know, cookery books, and you've probably got tons of baking books, right? Yeah. Yeah. Millions. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is what's so great about a, a cookery book and a baking book. And many of these books, people will buy lots of them, but they want those stories. It's like, it's not just another flapjack, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's personalized. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, plus it's a flapjack I've made a lot of times. <laughs> so it's definitely <laughs> it's a, really a good delicious flapjack. flapjack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a good flapjack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we should say in case people do want to get the book, The Great Adventure Baker, that these aren't things that you were baking out on the mountains you were baking them at home so this is based on home cookery 
It is, yes. It's not just something that you you need to take on an adventure. You could take it anyway. You could take it to a picnic. You could just have it at home. I, I adapted all of the recipes. Some of them originally, my recipes I had at home would be for sort of like round cakes in a round cake tin and things like that. And it's not really packable for taking out. So I converted them all so they're like tray bakes. So they're easy to stick in a Tupperware container basically and take with you wherever you're going. So that was another aspect of it. I had to convert them all. There was other recipes that I had to convert. There's one of my mum's in there uh, and you can apparently buy tins of condensed milk in kilos she's probably not very good for you but uh, she'd made them at farmers markets so she was making lots and lots so I had to work out the quantities for bringing it down into just an, a normal size domestic tray bake as well so there's bits and pieces like that in there that I've explained as well so I did wonder about how the editing process would work with a book like this because I mean you could send it to an editor for just the words but um, explain how the editing works in terms of I guess testing the recipes and stuff like that so I I pulled all the recipes together and typed them all out ready to be in the book and then I to photograph them, I made them from the recipes that I typed to make sure that the quantities were right and that my method was right. I'm not very good at remembering my own recipes, so I always do it from a, an, a printed out recipe, a written down recipe. So I, I made them, I, I typed them out, had them ready, set out an InDesign, and then I made them all to photograph them. And then also I got my kids to make them from the book as well before it went on sale to double check. So William and Alexander especially have been stood in my kitchen with the book making things out of it. So I I knew whether things worked or not. But yeah, it's a little bit different because there's different things that you've got to check for. Um, And my editor, Barbara, who I employed after that was really good as well for spotting things. So they're all sort of tried, tested and then tried again before it went uh, to print. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. I mean, although your sons are good at baking, I mean, <laughs> probably someone like me who never ever bakes <laughs> might have more challenge. But even I was looking at yeah. these recipes, going, these are these don't look too hard. <laughs> no, well, none of them are none of them are particularly difficult. I I did have to be mindful of making clear the method. It's funny because I bake all the time. I think I take for granted that people just know what you're talking about when you write these things down so it's actually just been like super duper clear in your step-by-step instructions to so everybody can make it and you don't need any baking knowledge before you start so that was something I was really careful about so hopefully I did a good job (laughs) yeah I think it's a really good book so let's come back to the photos so for a start you do have these gorgeous sort of panoramic mountain photos and adventure photos and they're all wonderful and that's one challenge but the photos of the bakes I mean this is product photography so talk about how you did that and any tips for people since this is so important for a cookbook and also for marketing yeah well I didn't use any synthetic things that I've heard of in product photography before where they you know they make burgers out of bits of sponge and all sorts of things like that I didn't do any of that they are all actual the actual bakes with the actual ingredient and I just use my camera phone and I think they're so good now I have a pixel and I love it for the camera I bought it because of the camera on it 
afterwards I edited them a little bit in Photoshop. So I like would blur the bits of the background or top the colours just to make them a bit more vibrant. But I didn't do any heavy editing on them. It was the main challenge was thinking of different ways to actually photograph the bakes so that all the photographs didn't just sort of look the same from the Mm. same angle each time so it was like different different angles different backgrounds different places different bits of foliage that I sat them on and all sorts of stuff like that and the the other challenge is remembering to photograph them when you're out um instead of just eating them which I did once (laughs) I took the there's a honey cake recipe in there and I took it out with me And I was sat there with uh, the person I was climbing with and we ate it. And then I went, I needed to photograph that. So I had to do it again. (laughs) Had to make another one. Oh, no. Had to make it damn. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But so, yeah, I I can see how you would have to change the backgrounds. But I was noticing like your dishes and things all look really lovely. So do people need like an extensive array of baking dishes and plates and things to put stuff on in order to make the photos, as you say, look look different? Yeah, well, that was the other thing. I sort of, to be honest, I, I took inspiration from like Good Food magazine, the other recipe books that I had on the shelf sort of flick through, saw what other people were doing, what I liked. And I didn't buy anything new. I just, I think if you rummage around enough and find a few different surfaces, some of the surfaces that look like worktops aren't the worktop in my kitchen. It's the top of a random unit in the house just to get a different background to the photograph. So I think you can just be a little bit inventive and just have a look at what's around the house. Some of them are taken on the floor. It looks like a really nice tile and it's just a floor in the house. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. So they're not all they're not all um, worktop because otherwise they'd just all be on black slate, which would be a bit boring. So yeah, you've got to get a bit creative with what you use. Mm. But I think this is really good is that you just used your Pixel phone, as you said, and then you did do some editing in Photoshop. But I guess people could even use whatever editing stuff is on the phone, like different filters, as in you don't need any special photographical equipment or anything, really, as long as you can be imaginative about how to do the angles, as you say. Yeah, to be honest, I just pulled the photographs from my phone onto my computer just because I found it easier to work like that. In all honesty, you could just use the filters. So just a standard filter just to make it look a little bit more vibrant. There's nothing particularly different about using Photoshop than there is using the filters on your phone. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so interesting how you can, as you say, take ideas from magazines and then think, well, how could I do that with my floor or this cabinet or whatever, instead of trying to set it up in some studio? I feel like sometimes the tutorials online around doing this kind of thing make it look really complicated, but actually you don't need anything special, just some creativity. Yeah, there was just like, I think when you take them inside, there was a little bit of issues with light. So it's just like, obviously not getting your own shadow over the cake and that kind of thing. Mm. That was kind of the only challenge. And outside when it was raining (laughs) and it's like 40 mile an hour winds on the top of a mountain and the cake's blowing away. But no, it wasn't, there's nothing too technical about it. Too technical. And in terms of the other photos you have in there, I mean, obviously there's photos of you. Uh, I think there's some of your kids. Yeah, there's some of my kids. I try not to use too many. I try not Mm. to make it into a, a little my kid fest in there so there's just so I did I did sort of limit it to the odd one or two but there's a few couple of William and Alexander because they're like my little 
baking buddies um, and there's a couple of other people but I tried to keep people's faces out of it so it's just more in action shots of the kind of stuff that I do mm. and then mostly landscapes. Yes mostly landscapes so as you said you've got a load of photos of other things so how did you choose those because I imagine you had tons to to pick from. With great difficulty <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot I, I just I scroll back and I, I pulled out my favourite and then I just sort of tried to use a, a mixture. So different seasons because they're all outside. Um, there was some climbing, some walking. Tried to get, I don't do a lot of uh, canoeing and that kind of thing, but I, I'd done some. So I had stuck one of those in. So I just tried to keep it so it was quite broad. Um, I love playing out in snowy wintry conditions on mountains so it nearly ended up being a lot of pictures of snow so I had to be quite <laughs> careful of putting some more summery ones in and and also autumn and spring and everything so try to just balance it's keeping a balance really making sure you don't use too much of one thing yeah I mean there's this is so much of the editing process with photo books is thinking about what the story is and like you, the, the pictures with your kids and some other people that's part of the story of the adventure and the family side and all of that kind of thing so that all brings life to the book in, in a different way so it feels like the editing of the words compared to the pictures I mean there are far more images in a, in this kind of book than there are words right? Yeah the the images were the bit that I found the most difficult to choose because you've got the pictures of the bakes and when you start taking pictures of your bakes for a book you take a lot more than you do just when you're out and about so I had sort of 20-30 pictures of the same bake and had to make a decision about which ones to use so that was quite hard mm. um Picking the other ones was fairly easy. I just picked landscapes that I really liked. Some of them were memories that I had. So it was particular places on particular days. They meant something to me. I would remember a little story about it or a little scrape that I got into or something like that. And and then there's fun ones. There's one of a, a walking boot disappearing into a, a gap in a cave in Wales, which was, it was a hugely fun day, kind of scrambling into this cave and then up and out of it which I I thought was fun and hopefully people will appreciate it as well. But yeah, it was quite a challenge with the pictures. Mm. And just as we as writers have editors for words, I mean, did you have anyone proof the pictures or comment on the picture design? It feels like that's something that a traditional publisher would have someone who does that. But I mean, you are already a designer, so you have those skills. But is there such a, a thing or is that just something you felt was right? I didn't. It was, some, it was something I worried about, getting the right balance. And I did put more pictures of myself <laughs> in the book. And I thought, oh, my God, there's so many pictures of me. Right, take them out, take them out. We don't need those. Don't need to see that many pictures of me. So I've kept, I've kept it just like two, I think there's two or three, something like that in there at the front. There's a picture of me as a little kid baking with my brother and there's probably about six or seven just because it, it meant something to me. So I put that with the four. But uh, no, I, I did ask a couple of friends to have a look and to see if they thought that the balance was okay. One of them was a writer and one of them was a mountaineer um, and hoped that they would pick up on anything where I'd completely overdone 
a certain type of photo or whatever. And I also had to check with people because there is one in there of somebody else's children. It's not obvious and it's only small, but I had to say, do you mind? Would you be okay with me including this? And they've got a copy of the book now. So that's really nice. And obviously there is pictures there that people have taken that they aren't mine because they're taken of me. So they're friends that have taken them on um, our adventures. And obviously you've got to get permission to use those because they're not your own photos. Mm. So so I, I did seek permission for them as well. So do you have everything in writing? Because I mean, it's all very well if people are friends, but then let's say your book just takes off and sells a gazillion yeah. copies. I mean, so you have everything in writing, the permissions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you should always get it in writing, definitely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so let's come to the design itself. So you are an award winning book cover designer, you do graphic design, (laughs) you have been using InDesign for many years. So you have the skills to design a book. But for people who might want to make their own photo dominant books, let's call them, what are your tips on that sort of any big things to think about or or is it a case of either work with a designer or learn to use something like InDesign? I you see I'm always like a massive advocate of learning to use stuff yourself I and mean, if, if you want to put out a, a really super professional book then obviously working with a designer is key but if you're wanting to do something like it's a project of your own it's a bit of a pet project definitely I'd learn to use software that can handle that kind of thing. And there's loads of templates out there now. And there's loads of software where you can pick, like website um, templates, you can pick a template and then populate it. So you can do it as your own project. For me, this wasn't a big, massive thing about selling lots of books. It was something that I wanted to do for myself. And obviously, I wanted to do it really, really nicely. But loads of templates out there if you're wanting to do your own. Um, I, what I would say is obviously just be really careful about what kind of photos you're using and being aware of whether they do look like super amateur. But it, it depends what your market is at the end of the day as to how you want to choose them, mm. I think. Yeah, I mean, you have obviously we've been working together for like a decade now (laughs) I think and you helped with my pilgrimage interior and we did have some pictures for that although it wasn't massively design heavy it was still I found it very very hard to choose the pictures and then basically I just gave you all the pictures and you put them into the book in a way that looked nice (laughs) so I mean is that's an example of working with a designer where it's like here's my images could you make them look good is that okay as as a project yeah yeah I mean it's obviously you can make like pages as collages and mix about so like full full spreads even so you've got a big landscape picture running across two pages always looks really nice bled right off the edge of the page and then other pages where you've got a collage so it keeps it interesting so you mix it up so obviously I've got pages of recipes and then I've got pages of photos and um, I've got the photographs that correspond to the recipe and then I've got other pages where I've put in landscape pictures to break it up And then I've also got like little photos of my mum's handwritten recipes, just two or three, which I thought would be nice to include because they were her recipes originally. And then it's typed out as well, but the little photos there of her handwriting. And then I've put like little 
boxes, uh, coloured boxes where I've put tips or tricks or or ways you might want to change the recipe, add something and that kind of thing. And it just breaks it up and it gives you a really nice layout. No, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about the publishing side, because this is, again, one of the challenges of a photo heavy book is the choice around paper and around uh, printing and distribution and cost. So can you tell us a, a bit about that? What what choices you made there? Well, I wanted the book to be a really nice book. So I opted for a heavier weight colour paper because you've got different options when you're printing colour. Um, then you have when you print a novel, for example, where you've only got white or cream or and I know a lot of printers are doing ground wood now. So I with with the colour books, you've got, you know, colour, like a standard colour and then a premium colour. And I think they can be up to like, depending on which printer you use, sort of four different grades of paper. So I opted for the nicest one because <laughs> I wanted it to be really nice. And I ordered it with a dust jacket as well. So it's got the nice dust jacket over the top of the case laminate. So you've got your little flaps front and back as well, which I thought was lovely. So it's more expensive, but it it does make a really nice product, I think. And I, I know there's printers uh, out there now looking to offer more. So you can get ribbons and things like that, which I would really like to look at in the future to ribbon down the pages as like a bookmark which would be a really nice touch Mm. Um, but price wise color printing is quite expensive compared to black and white novel printing but it's affordable it's totally doable amazon i think are still the most expensive so i opted to print with ingram spark and book vault as well both of them and they're quite comparable in color printing and the quality is really nice from both of them. So you didn't use KDP Print at all. You just use Ingram Spark to distribute to Amazon. Yeah, I did. So that's interesting. You've done a paperback and a hardback. I, I did. Yeah, because the paperback is a bit cheaper to produce. So I just thought for anyone wanting one and it didn't really cost me any more to do it. It's quite simple for me to set the files up. It's only the cover. The interior mm. stays the same. So you just need to change the cover files. So I changed yes. the cover files and did it as a paperback too. And I did it as a Kindle just in case anyone fancied a Kindle copy and I have sold a few. So they obviously did. Yeah. Well, do people look at them on their iPads or on their tablets, prop them up in the kitchen? Yeah. I mean, when I occasionally do a recipe, that is how I do it. Um, yeah. I guess it is actually quite hard to do an ebook because it has to be reflowable. Yes, I kept it reflowable. I know you can do fixed layout ebooks and that kind of thing, but it's just so much easier. And when I looked, most of the big popular baking books, like the Great British Bake Off and the like, they're reflowable. That's Mm. how they've done them. So I just I followed the same formula and did it reflowable like I've done all of my other ebooks over the years. And it just works. It works across all devices. And it's, and it's not as pretty as getting fixed layout as a, as a paperback can be because you haven't got the flexibility as you have with a paperback of doing exactly what you like. You've got to keep it quite simple so that it works on all different devices, whether it's a phone or a tablet or it's a, a proper Kindle or a not proper Kindle or whatever. So I, I just designed it so that it was completely straightforward and reflowable. So I have uploaded that directly to KDP. 
Right. And, and did you do that in are. vellum or what do you use for ebooks? I use Juto. Oh, okay. Wow. Old school. I hope I hope it's pronounced like that. <laughs> yeah, Juto, yeah. J U T O H for people listening. Yeah, I've used it for I've used it for years. Uh find it I do find it really good. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's definitely one of the older programs. I think that's really interesting. I guess another tip for people with this is you could have done an ebook file with fewer images and then linked to a web page with a downloadable PDF or there's way and there's ways of doing images in other ways to save on the delivery cost which can actually be quite high yeah yeah I've left mine in but I use less there's less images in there and I reduce the size of them a little bit right for that specifically so they're still really good quality and it's still color uh, but it's all the images really that are more relative to the recipes that are in the ebook Mm, yeah, but that's a, a important for people to remember. Check your delivery charges with massive ebook files full of images because yeah. you might end up, even if you charge like nine ninety nine, you might still have a big whack of that taken out in delivery charge. And we, we just don't think about that with mostly text books, right? No, no, they don't because it was only over a certain megabyte they started yeah, charging exactly. you, I think, for a yeah. delivery charge. Is that right? Yeah, it's really small and most of us never hit anything significant like maybe it's a couple of cents but with this type of book it can be significant so that's a tip so I did want to ask what are the dimensions of the print book it is um (laughs) now you're asking I I'm pretty sure I did it 6.14 inches by 9.21 it's like slightly bigger than your sort of six by nine book just with it being a photo book I wanted it that little bit bigger but I didn't want it massive That's fantastic. And obviously, for people listening, the size that you decide on, the dimensions will impact your print cost and all of that kind of thing. So there are a lot of things to think about, aren't there? And you can't change it either, your your size. It's linked to your ISBN. So once you've published it, it's there. And they always appear on Amazon as well. So even if you unpublish, you'll end up and publish again in a different size. You end up with two listings. Mm, So you need to like be clear about what size you want right at the beginning. Yes, and you can do that by getting some of the books on your shelves and just measuring them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I, I mean, I think I remember doing that years ago and was like, right, okay, this is how we do it. But the other thing I wondered is if you now love doing these types of books and if maybe you'll do a, a women adventuring book or a, something like that. Oh, so, well, I was thinking of doing another one, but it wasn't quite that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of keeping the theme and doing another book, but this time food flask recipes. Ooh. So things that, because we all take like a food flask or just a normal flask full of like soups and stews and things like that. So I was thinking I would stick with the outdoor theme and instead of it being cakes, it would be more savoury things to take out in the cold. So I have loads of recipes, you see. And so I thought I might start work on that over winter. Yeah, that sounds great. I love that. And I think uh, just as a marketing tip for people in general, having a series of any kind of books is a good idea. So you'll have a cookbook series, I guess, or it won't be a baking, it will be a cookbook series. Yeah, 
yeah that essentially yes that's it so I'll have to I've been having a little think of recipes that my kids would like because they'll just be like soup that's boring so I thought <laughs> I might have to do like a recipe with so it's homemade custard in your food flask which I've never seen done but I thought that would be quite cool and a little recipe for red fingers to go with it that you can dip in or something that would like appeal to children or like the child and us adults yeah, that's. I think that sounds really fun. And I mean, there's definitely a lot of people who do this kind of stuff all over the world. So I think this is a, a great idea. So we're almost out of time, but I did want us to talk about something. We are recording this in November 2023, and the AI tools have really taken over in the last year. And one of the interesting things, I think, is that people uh, a year ago were really worried about even talking to designers and some designers were really anti-AI. But in the last year, I have sent to you quite a number of my images and people will know my book, Writing the Shadow, the front cover of that, both of those images, the smoke and the typewriter are AI images, which I sent to you. So I wonder if you could maybe talk about your thoughts on the use of AI images and how authors can work with designers to kind of do this together and incorporate elements of AI into design? I was originally probably 12 months ago one of those people who was a bit nervous about it not in a design point of view from my perspective worrying that I wouldn't have a job or anything like that but we are very cautious well I am very cautious about using images that I know are not going to have a problem with copyright. A lot of people send me images and I'm like, well, I don't know where you've got it from. So we we can't use it unless I know that it's come from a stock library and we can officially license it or it's from Wiki Commons and we, and we know it's a public domain image and I'm pretty sure of that. So for me, it was a, a confidence in using AI images and whether there would be any repercussions legally in terms of copyright. And that was my concern at the beginning. And now it seems that a lot of people are finding it more acceptable. It seems to be okay. I've been re-looking again at mid-journey and the terms and conditions. And they all seem to have terms and conditions now, which are allowing images generated by them to be used for commercial purposes. So from a legal point of view, I'm kind of happy doing it. I'm more than happy for authors to send me images that they've created uh, using AI because it means that they've spent the time putting the keywords in and, and generating images and images until they get the perfect image that they want and then they send it to me and sometimes they're kind of happy with the image as it is. It's just a case of converting that into something that is a good book cover um, and then other times it's just they just wanted a character. So they leave it up to me to do the background and all of all of the other imagery surrounding the character. It's just that they had something in mind for that character. They wanted it to hold something specific or look a certain way and they couldn't find what they wanted. And then there's others there's other authors that just love playing with AI imagery. So they just do that a lot and then they just send me loads of stuff and they're just like choose what you want and they've just had a really good time doing it so <laughs> yeah uh, I mean that's that's me I really I like you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah yeah but with um I think catacombs probably a better example in terms of I did send you like a whole load of things like textures and skulls and people yeah. running and then you took I think it was maybe three of them to make the composite images and then you obviously did the font 
as well. And that was ebook, audiobook and print too and large print and all of that. So that was a case of me going nuts and spending time creating stuff and then you doing the design work of putting it all together. And I mean, I feel like that's a really good way forward for people who enjoy the AI process and also with designers like yourself who are happy to do that. Yeah, for me, it's only the same. I'm a, I'm a designer, not an illustrator. So for me, it's just the same as an author client going ahead and commissioning a painting or a digital illustration from an illustrator and then supplying it to me and saying, I need that to be made into a cover. And it's just the same thing, really, from my mm. point of view. Obviously, they've not used an illustrator, but from my perspective and the work that I then do on the cover, it's the same thing. So it's I, I don't mind at all. I think it's a, I think it's really good that you can generate this whole wealth of new images. And mm-hmm. um and it can be like a really creative process because you're never quite sure what it's going to pop up with either. And I've have dabbled with it myself and I've generated a few bits and pieces that I've used in covers. Uh, a lot of the there's quite a lot of images available on stock libraries, which I believe has been generated by AI now, and they're actually allowing people to download it on license. So, yeah, I think we're using indeed- it even whether we don't know it. Yeah, and that's what I think too. I think it, given that Adobe Firefly and book cover designers are using Photoshop or InDesign or other Adobe yeah. products, it, it seems almost impossible at this point for people to be not using some form of AI. Yeah, no, that's right. I think even when you don't realise that you're probably using it anyway now, mm. it's in everything, isn't it? So Yeah, exactly. And I, that's ha- kind of how I feel like like a year ago, it was all like, ooh, ooh, we can't do that. And now it's like, ooh, this is great fun. Let's just add it to our process. And it's good to hear that you're not worried because obviously we're still working together. And even if I design amazing stuff or generate amazing stuff myself, I'm still my skill is not turning this into a book design or a book cover design. No. So I think us all working together in just more creative ways is, is very exciting. Yeah, it's just another way of working. And as I say, it's very similar for me to working with somebody who's employing an illustrator. Um, with some of the time, I will brief an illustrator um, for a client and other times they, they just engage with one and then supply me with the the images afterwards Mm. so it's just a very similar way of working to that for me Mm. fantastic well exciting times ahead so tell people where they can find the cookbook as well as everything you do online you can find me at um, jdsmith-design.co.uk that's my design website and uh, you can find the book at mybook2 forward slash the great adventure baker and that will take you to various places it's available online brilliant well thanks so much for your time jane that was great thank you So I hope you found the interview with Jane interesting and that it gave you some tips around photo heavy books and indeed cookbooks, since I know a lot of people want to make their own. And I have started planning my Gothic Cathedral project. So it was great to hear from Jane about things to consider because that will be photo heavy. 
So if you're inside my Patreon community, I have a video coming this week, a demo on how to use ChatGPT for researching and writing the first draft of your email newsletter for fiction or nonfiction, which helps with the dreaded question of what do I email my readers once they have signed up for my email list? That is a video demo and discussion with my friend Jay Thorne. And you can access everything at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. So next week, I have a solo show on how generative AI search will impact book discoverability in the next decade, something I've been researching and thinking about for a while and am almost ready to share. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.